Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about our deepest values, stories that shape us and how we can learn to engage better across our deep differences. Every episode I speak to someone with some kind of public voice, ask them about what they believe and what they have learnt about how we can have better encounters across our divides. In this episode I spoke to Mary Harrington. Mary is a psychotherapist, writer and columnist for Unheard. We spoke about the legacy of her Steiner School, the influence of postmodernism on mental health, the challenges of speaking of motherhood in public, and what exactly is post-liberalism. I hope you enjoy listening. Mary, we're going to kick off straight in the deep end, talking about the sacred, this big hefty word. People react to it in all manner of different ways, which I find really interesting. When you were given some warning that I'd asked you about your sacred value, What's, what sort of thought processes has that set off in you? Well, it's kind of a difficult, it's a difficult thing to think about. The first thing that came to mind was that I just wanted to argue with premises in that, you know, if you ask somebody about their personal sacred values, I think that's a contradiction in terms. In that I question the idea that sacred values are something which can be defined personally in the sense that, you know, sacredness, sanctity, to use an older version of the same word, is, is something which is created collectively. You know, it's a site of social meaning. You know, churches, churches are the spaces they are and they have the atmospheres they have because people, people come into them collectively to be serious. And, it, and when people stop doing that over time, over, over cumulatively, that sort of way, it, it withers away again. Things become sacred by virtue of sort of mass, mass agreement that that's, that's what they are. There, are. there are values or ideas which are becoming, you know, ever more sacred in the sense that it's ever it's ever more forbidden to speak against them and that's happening by a process of a sort of collective decision making process um so so asking me about what my personal sacred values are is is something of a contradiction in terms you know i can i can tell you what what i would struggle to get over in in a personal friendship you know i could i can sort of derive some things from that but they they seem they seem very big and very abstract and and sort of not 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 especially meaningful in a, in a wider social context. So I think if we're if we're talking about the sacred in the sense of what brings people together, um, it's not really up to me in a sense. You know, I live within the sacred values of the society that we all inhabit. You know, and I might have a more or less um, ambivalent relationship to some of them, um, but that doesn't change the fact that I live I live within that matrix of values and and beliefs. You're very right, of course, and I always think Durkheim would rolling in his grave at the idea that I'm asking individuals about their sacred values. So maybe a better question for you would be, what do you observe? What do you think is sacred in 21st century British life, for example? That's the big question. If I go silent, it's not because I've cut off or run It's fine. That's the joy of being able to edit out. There's a, there's a long answer and a short answer to that. The, the, the short answer is, I think, that the sort of central sacred value that we've, we've come to or that we've whittled it down to um, is personal freedom, which is a very paradoxical sort of a sacred value to have, because it sort of it it disappears in your hands even as you try and grab hold of it, because it's sort of in a, it doesn't seem to have any content in and of itself. You know, it's it it doesn't it doesn't ask any one particular course of action of you. You know, in a sense, it's a sort of via negative version of the sacred. It's a sort of sacredness defined by the absence of positive content. Um, and that's that's that I would argue is having some very strange 
um, societal side effects in the sense that, you know, it leaves us very little to sort of hang our collective um, meaning making from. You know, it whittles away at all of the pegs that we might once have hung, hung those sort of social structures off. You know, whether or not you, are, you agree with them, I don't, you know, I'm not, not particularly keen to go back to a world where it's expected that as a woman I, I behave like this or like that. But equally, um, it's, it's difficult to argue that, you know, those things help to structure society and to give people a sense of how they ought to behave. Um, so we find ourselves in this strange world where, you know, there's this sort of collective agreement that we shouldn't tell anybody how they ought to behave. But at the same time, we, we sort of, we all feel a bit lost because we don't know how to behave. There's a quote from the Harvard psychologist Robert Keegan I've come across recently that I'm sure I'm going to be quoting everywhere. Casper Takao is a former guest who's used it in his book, and it's about the pressures of the moment of this fragmented world are kind of to recreate within your own head the structures of meaning that used to be held by a community and the sort of metaphysical, moral, intellectual weight of that can be utterly crushing because that's not really what, how we've just been designed to do it. Absolutely. I think it's an unacknowledged and massive factor in this epidemic of mental health issues that we're seeing in young people, uh, which is particularly acute in young people in uh, liberal arts, in students of the arts and the humanities. And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, it's because, you know, nowhere do you assume, nowhere, nowhere else are you going to absorb, you know, more sort of, you know, undiluted form, you know, this, this assault on all of the sort of, you know, historical, traditional, you know, accumulated um, structures of meaning, you know, which might once have, um, as, as you say, structured, have, you know, organised those things for people. But, you know, through, well, through the medium of critical theory and various types of critical studies, you know, there's a, they, the, the line of argument there sort of treats treats all of those accumulated structures as oppressive, or as um, as as con- as constraining as you know, if you like, an, an an attack on people's capacity to create themselves according to the the uh, obligation to personal freedom. And what young people are left with as a consequence is this sort of. Um, on the one hand, you have this obligation to to curate yourself to make yourself maximally marketable in the adult world. And on the other hand, you're you're given absolutely absolutely no guidance as to how to do that. And so I think it's and and on the one hand, you're reliant on the other to validate your identity. But on the other hand, being being defined by another person is is seen as an act of violence against you. So I think it's no wonder that these people are angry and tortured and confused and pulling down statues. You know, I think there's you know, of course there are there are other things going on there, and I don't really want to. I don't really want to speak out of turn, but I, I, I feel like I feel like the the assault on meaning in the name of freedom, you know, is at a sort of deep structure level playing into some of that yeah. distress and some of that acting out. I'm sure we'll circle back round to it because I want to talk about a conversation that we've both been at least listening into and you've been very active in, which is about a kind of post-liberal conversation, which is one of the alternative movements coming out of some of this dissatisfaction, the sense that where we've got to isn't helping us thrive. But I'm going to make myself pause there to try and get a sense of you in your story of what's shaped your thinking. So I'd love to hear a bit, just uh, maybe a few vignettes from your childhood, and particularly anything that you think is kind of formative ideas that were in the air, whether they were political or spiritual or philosophical, that shaped the woman that you are today, either in reaction against them or things that you've carried through. Well, I mean, I, I went to a faith school of of a sort, um, but it was an unusual faith school. I went to a Rudolf Steiner school, um, 
and Rudolf Steiner was either a visionary or a madman, or possibly both. Um, we don't we don't know, but he he's he's one of the most influential unstudied thinkers of the 20th century. Um, his work has been quietly phenomenally influential, but is is very rarely mentioned in sort of mainstream. And he was um, he was an esoteric. Um, he was a visionary. Um, he he claimed to be able to see the, the spiritual world, and he wrote at great length, enormous enormously productive, you know, in lectures and various books about um, his understanding of the evolution of consciousness, the history of humanity, all the way back to before Atlantis, which he says was a real place. Um, and what he what his his followers and his enthusiasts have developed, you know, based on the thinking of Rudolf Steiner, is as an education system. There's there's a method for agriculture, uh, biodynamic farming, which um, right on people who are interested in sustainability have sometimes come across, but rarely in the context of Rudolf Steiner, and which includes all sorts of unusual practices like um, planting according to the phases of the moon, and yeah, the including astrology in in animal husbandry, um, so quite yeah, quite quite unusual things. Um, but it's a whole worldview. I mean, what I'm trying to get across is it's a whole worldview, and when you're inside it, when you grow up inside it. My mum was a teacher at the science school. Um, it's it's you know it's 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 like it's like going to a Christian brother's school. You know, perhaps a bit less strict. My my husband actually is a lapsed Catholic. And although we had very, he went to a Christian Brothers school, and we've compared notes on the experience of growing up inside our faith, even though the faiths that we grew up in were quite different, but in a, in a funny way, it's something that we both share. Um, and I think when you grow up inside a, a faith, like a, a sort of faith community, I don't think you ever really deprogram yourself. And so there's almost certainly bits of bits of my Steiner heritage which still structure the way I think about things. Yeah, that is really interesting. So you launched out of Steiner School, you went off to study English and languages at Oxford. And then one of the things I've always, I've found really interesting about you and reassuring about you, because I'm this way too, and lots of the people I know are, is you've had a real zigzag career of following interests, you know, writing on culture and being involved in an educational startup. Do you have a sense of what were the threads you were pulling on in that phase of your career? <laughs> um, in the, in my twenties, I was well. When I when I got to Oxford, um, postmodernism hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, I wrote a long piece about that. That's been sort of twenty years in the gestation. I'm not going to try and summarise it now. Beyond saying um, postmodernism, critical theory, um, I found I found it deeply disturbing um, coming from this sort of grand, unifying, very teleological worldview that I'd grown up in to as a sort of deconstructive perspective where everything is power and there are no stable meanings. Um, and I, 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 it was sort of a borderline a psychotic experience. You know, the, it was like the walls were moving around. It was, it was deeply disturbing. Um, and it took me, I think, most of my 20s to recover from that or at least, you know, find any way of coping with it at all. Um, I was, yeah, I, I, I was not, not the most emotionally stable person. And, you know, I wouldn't say postmodernism drove me crazy because, you know, it's, that, that was quite plausibly something which should have happened anyway. But it certainly it was it was the uh, it was the delivery mechanism for the crazy. It was the vector it took. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, it sounds it sounds mental to say to say that I spent my 20s trying to find answers to the problems that that threw up for me. But I think I think that's pretty much what I was doing. You know, I was trying to I was trying to figure out whether it's possible to have a meaningful encounter with the other. I was trying to work out whether it's possible to organize and get anything done 
um, outside of hierarchies of dominance. Um, it, uh, my conclusion there, incidentally, is that no, you can't. Um, Tell me a bit more about that, because I'm in, intrigued. And, you know, some of the conversations I end up in, because I end up in lots of different conversations deliberately, is very much in that very flat hierarchical attempts to build organizations and movements without having to just recreate power hierarchy dominance. And I'm always intrigued by them, but have never sort of thrown myself in that direction. What were you trying to do? And I guess it's, you know, it could be a whole interview, but in short, sort of, why did you reach the conclusion you couldn't? Well, it's, it's not exactly that you can't. It's that, although this, this, this really is a very long conversation, I'd have to tell you, I'd, I'd have to dig back into some actually quite painful memories. When the, when, the, when the startup collapsed, it was absolutely devastating for me. I'll just contextualize it. I lost my best friend. I lost my whole social circle. I lost pretty much you know, the entirety of where I thought my life was going. I mean, having a business fail, is, is a lot of people will recognize that it's an upsetting thing. But it's, it was like, you know, the only thing I can compare it to, I've also experienced miscarriage. And it was like that. You know, it's a sort of the same kind of bereavement in the sense that it's sort of, it's not, it's not a person that's out there in the world, you know, it's a set of ideas and a set of hopes that you have and a set of possibilities that have just gone. And um, those, yeah, lo- losing, losing a business and the hopes that you have for that and, and losing, losing a pregnancy um, are, are perhaps, perhaps more closely, more alike than I ever could have imagined. So that, that's just to give you, give you a context for why, it's, why this is it's a painful area to discuss. Um, but just to say a little bit more about power and hierarchy, because um, it really was a, it was a, you know, we we tried to we tried to organise without um, without an organisational hierarchy. In you know, we had five co-founders, and we tried to pretend that we were all equal, equal, but we weren't. Um, we tried to pretend pretend that we made decisions in a in a flat structure, and we didn't. Um, and I mean, it's 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 arguable that perhaps perhaps we just didn't have the mental or the societal software that we needed in order to have made such a sort of flat hierarchical organization work. But what I took away from the experience of having tried desperately hard um, to, do, to do something outside of this, this sort of the, the, the old-fashioned hierarchical approach and failing so spectacularly, I mean, what, what, I mean, what happened in a nutshell was that, you know, the, the same old power dynamics crept back in. And it's just that they were unspoken and they were unspeakable, you know, in a sense, you know, the, the shadow of a flat structure is a tacit hierarchy. And, and it, it became increasingly impossible to speak to that, you know, relationships soured and it became increasingly difficult to speak to that. And because of all of this was so tied up for me with my personal preoccupations and my anxieties about um, power and meaning and so on, you know, the... I, I became so sort of angry and despairing about the whole thing that I think I was just pretty obnoxious to work with, and I ended up I ended up basically being kicked out of the startup. It was it was a very painful experience. It was like my world fell apart at that point. It was brutal, um, and I suppose it it left me with a lot of difficult questions to try and make sense of about how to how how do you how do you get if how do you get anything done if if power is in, inescapable, you know if you know, imbalances of power are an you know unshakable fact of life. Then, how do you how, how do you wrestle with on the one hand the desire to kind of make them visible and um, not allow them to become oppressive, but on the other hand, the reality that they need to exist if you're going to organise beyond you know sort of a family unit, for example. 
You know, how are, you, how, how are we supposed to exist in a complex society unless we're able to grapple with the question of power? You know, not as something, not as something oppressive that we need to destroy, but as something, something enabling that we can work with in order to create as well. Um, and that, that sort of, I mean, I, I, would, I, don't know that, I don't know that I'd have articulated any of that as um, clearly at the time. I, mean, I, I mostly went away feeling numb and bruised and, <laughs> and pretty disillusioned with the whole sort of vaguely kind of, you know, Blairite left, think tanky, you know, things can only get better-ish sort of a world in which the startup had been happening. Um, and just thought, well, you know, if, if all of that was bullshit, then what else is bullshit? And just went, went and did some reading, read all the things which were verboten um, and came to the conclusion that actually, you know, some of them are verboten for a good reason. But others, you know, are, you know, per perhaps onto something and you need, need to be given serious consideration. You know, I, by, I vowed at that point that I was I was just going to hang up my boots and, you know, give up politics and give up the Internet and just be a sensible grown up and, you know, get a sensible job. And, I left London and I got married and um, and that sort of, you know, normal life took up my life for some years. Um, I retrained as a psychotherapist and that was actually life changing as well because it, it helped. It answered some of the questions which I had about whether or not whether or not it's possible to have human encounters and human relationships outside outside this sort of, you know, the intrusions of power into into everything that we do. And I think the. Um, the inference I took away from the sort of critical theory, um, continental philosophy, if you like, was that it's impossible to have human encounters without without uh, power somehow intruding. Mm. It's, impo it's impossible to meet another person in any in any space whatsoever without without your encounter being overwritten by, you know, your 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 different identities and you know the the the, the, the without it being over over determined. And in a sense, you know, stripping away your agency and ability to encounter the other in any sort of authentic sense. Um, but practicing as a therapist just um, just really argued against that for me, because I think one of the things that's very interesting about psychotherapy is that um, uh, relational psychoanalysis, particularly, has sort of has met the same kind of decentering of the subject as you get in continental philosophy. In I'm going to ask you to. Um Forgive me to cross it. I'm going to ask you to explain what that is. Yeah, it's an idea out of deconstruction that says, you know, it's not really possible to have an objective self that, you know, that is capable of accessing truth. Because, in yeah. fact, we're all, we're all written by our, our, our cultural backgrounds and our, you know, societal positions and our identities and so on and so forth. And as a result, you know, this, this, this objectivity, which you know the sort of the, the kind of scientific worldview is in fact just a kind of duck blind for um, patriarchy misogyny etc and all the rest of those that's 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 a very crude characterization of the argument but that's that's roughly that's the territory um, and the same the same questioning of whether it's possible to have an objective view or an objective analyst or an, um, comes up in psychoanalysis as well you know, because, you know, but Sigmund Freud is very much of the opinion that the, the analyst can sort of se separate himself, uh, him, I, I use himself advisedly here, and and take an objective perspective on what's going on for the client. But contemporary psychoanalysis is more of the opinion that, in fact, what's, what you're creating together is a relational space in which transformation is possible. But that takes a degree of reflexivity on the part of your, um, a part of the psychotherapist as well as the client 
you know, in a, in a sense, you have the, it takes a great deal of introspection from the therapists as well. And what, what, what becomes possible or what I, what I learned becomes possible through that is um, transformation. I've been transformed in therapeutic encounters, but I've also transformed. I mean, I won't, I won't tell you stories because I can't, but um, I, have, I have letters um, that have been written to me by former clients, which, you know, I still can't read without welling up. Um, it's, it's possible. It's possible to meet the other um, and, for, and for beautiful things to happen. And, and that, that very nihilistic postmodern argument that, in fact, you know, that's, we're all just atoms spinning out on our own. It's, it's not true. It's so interesting, this conversation, Mary, for lots of reasons. One is it's helping me make sense of something I can't fully articulate, but it's the way the sort of fundamental thread that we are pulling at is so similar in lots of different c- tribes and conversations and just expressed very differently. You know, this, this I'm a huge Martin Buber fan and this sense of the I, thou, this encounter with God, uh, which is Buber's main concern, actually, which often gets overlooked, but also real moment of encounter with other, the way that's the sort of bedrock of so much theology, but also in with my kind of spiritual but not religious friends, this sense of the the things that get in between the intimacy of human encounter and create these kind of barriers of loneliness. And then in the policy and the politics world that I'm also in, although it's much more instrumental, pragmatic language, these, you know, that that is when, when you really strip it off and everyone sort of slightly drops their professional guard, it's this sense that we, the way we're living is not human or humane because we're, we're creating structures that keep us from each other and keep us from our true selves. And yeah, I'm now I'm just thinking about what, what would it mean to kind of bust out of some of those silos and, and see the, the existential questions under things. But I'm going to park that thought and try and ground, ground this conversation in something quite specific. One of the threads that we pull on is, um, I've used that phrase a lot today, it sounds like a tapestry weaver, is about public conversations and where they're tricky across difference and how can we do them better. And I first came across your writing. And actually, if you Google you, it's the first thing that comes up, your piece from, I think, late last year on motherhood and why motherhood began to undermine this sense of identity. We had as someone who was a kind of broadly left liberal feminist in a sort of broad way. And I became a mother nearly six years ago and had a similar moment of like, gosh, the feminism that I thought I held has just completely changed colour. And why is this experience so entirely absent from art and culture and our narratives? And yet even in feminist circles trying to talk about it, feels like you're somehow letting the side down. Um, tell me about the lead up to that piece and uh, what your kind of experience has been of trying to talk thoughtfully and carefully about motherhood in public. Well, I mean, the, the reaction I got to that piece was surprisingly popular. It was surprisingly positive. Um, I, was, I was expecting at least somebody to, to say horrible things about how I was some sort of awful reactionary or, I don't know, um, that trying to, trying to send, take women back to the dark ages or send us back to the kitchen. Or, you know, I tried very, very hard to hedge what I was saying by you know, emphasising that that's, that's really not what I'm advocating either for myself or anybody else. But it's a problem. Um, it's a, there are some real tensions between the embodied experience of being a mum and the cultural um, 
context that we have and the, what's valued in the culture that we have. And the particularly the emphasis that we have on personal development, individual freedom, and quite a sort of um, what, what I think is quite a limited, limiting idea of autonomy, what freedom means. Um, because, you know, there's once when you, if you're breastfeeding, for example, there is no meaningful sense in which when your baby is screaming for milk at 3 a.m., you can turn over and go back to sleep because I don't want to. Because I don't, there, there is no because I don't want to, which I think is sort of is something that's, that really comes is front and center, particularly in childbirth and caring for a new baby, you know, and the sort of embodied, you know, just the body, bodily nature of it. You know, you really do switch off your front brain for a while. And, and that's just a, that, that's quite a, a shocking place to find yourself, you know, particularly as a, you know, university educated, you know, reasonably middle class, you know, white collar working, you know, logically thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm as cognitively capable as anybody else on this planet in Western woman, you know, so going from that to, you know, pretty, having your front brain pretty much kind of sidelined by some, some fairly basic animal stuff, you know, takes a bit of adjusting. Um, and I, and it's just sort of, it left me, it, it left me with some questions about the, the ideology within which feminism um, has, has shaped itself, I suppose. You know, whether or not actually it takes enough account of, you know, some pretty um, immutable realities of what it is to be female. Mm. Yeah, the, um, the narrative that I sometimes come across is this, that, you know, to be free, we need to care less and take less responsibility for others. And that then, we're then who else is going to do it? Yeah, and that we're somehow complicit in our own oppression because we keep caring. And what really crystallized for me around having babies and breastfeeding them and then trying to go back to work whilst breastfeeding and trying to lead an organization through two maternity leaves was this sense of, I, I don't want to have to decenter that part of myself. But I don't want to give away all the power that I feel like I'm trying to learn to wield wisely and with authority and hopefully growing in virtue around. Um, but even in even in talking even in talking about our experience as a mother, what I'm aware of is that there'll be some people listening for whom they not they don't they just don't want to talk, listen to a conversation about motherhood, which is totally fine um, and one well and very normal. But that the absence of places to talk about it, something so, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's fundamental. It's through, it's the way through which every human being arrives. Um, despite the kind of sensitivities around infertility or baby loss, which is some of what's driving that for, you know, very pastoral reasons. But also, yes, because I feel like, this tension as a sort of woman with some kind of public voice that people will take me less seriously if I have my, I don't, my, the part of me that is a mother front and center. And in some ways, lockdown's really helping with that because everyone who is a parent is finding it hard to hide that fact. Um, and part of me that wants to just not talk about motherhood at all, but talk about parenthood because in talking about motherhood, I feel like I'm just continually reinforcing this pat, these patterns that leave women taking the, the majority of caring responsibilities for years after the brute biological facts would necessitate it. Sorry, that's a scrambled download of thoughts, but 
what what do you think would be kind of a healthy healthier conversation about motherhood and parenthood in public that would be more kind of life-giving and more human for um for everyone with a stake in it well i feel like lots of the pieces are there but what we're missing is some of the connective tissue um when i say lots of the pieces are there i think there are there's quite a lot of material in evolutionary psychology which we could use which feminism could use to inform a more compassionate embodied um way of talking about motherhood you know but i think i think i understand why there's this sort of odd chinese wall between evolutionary psychology and feminism because it's very easy to go from um you know normative a, a scientific paper that says you know this is this is commonly the case for for males as opposed to females to that this is to this ought um and i think you know many women are very very tired of hearing from um reactionaries that you know because because science says that there are there are some differences normative differences between the sexes on various personality traits but therefore that means you or i should be a certain way you know nobody nobody wants to be having that conversation because it's boring and futile and it's and, and wrong not to mention um putting putting people who don't conform to those normative stereotypes in an unpleasant and sometimes dangerous position so you know this this is it's sensitive territory but at the same time um i think we've en- we've ended up in a we, we if, if you go too far the other way you end up in a situation where you you pretend that there are no differences between the sexes at all apart from their dangly bits and that's just not you know self evidently not the case you know you you if you, anyone with eyes and a functioning brain ought to be able to see that but politically we're not allowed to talk about that and there are good reasons for that and compassionate reasons for that um but uh, but that that's perhaps something that we could we could usefully look at um you know how how can how can women who have women's interests at heart engage with this stuff so that it doesn't become owned become the the exclusive territory of the, of you know reactionary anti-feminists because i think certainly there's a danger of that being the case at the moment and that's i'm not keen on that and i think perhaps there's somewhere in this conversation there's a meaningful conversation to be had and i suppose this is where we get on to post-liberalism about limits and this is something you know i'm i'm in the phenomenally privileged position of being able to work from home flexibly and pretty much set my own hours um but regardless i have a my my daughter's 3 um i'm i'm incredibly fortunate and in i get i get to spend a lot of time with her um in a way you know it's i'm very lucky i know it, that this you know there are plenty of mothers who are not nearly so lucky and have to make for example you know single mothers or um you know people whose occupations take them out of the house regard you know there are some jobs that you can't do from home you know that's but that, that's pretty obvious there are probably conversations that we can have about about limits you know for me there is i've i've i found that there's a hard limit on the amount of time i can spend away from my daughter without the connection between us suffering um you know i don't think i'm alone in that as a mum you know i if i wanted to if i wanted to make different trade-offs i could allow that connection to attenuate i could you know not not find it so easy to tune into what she needs or wants at any given point and you know and outsource that to a nanny or or some other caretaking person or perhaps a father or who knows you know different people take different decisions but it's it's important to me that that connection stays strong and well tended and because of that i've 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 decided i've i've you know sometimes sometimes reluctantly accepted that there are hard limits on the amount of time i can spend doing my work work 
and that's that's just the reality of it and it will probably change as she gets older but while while she's little that just is the way it is um so i, I think there's a piece in there about limits as well and how you how you um balance those different trade-offs you know and again this assumes that you have the personal freedom you know even to be able to make those decisions with any degree of control and in that i'm phenomenally privileged um but you know if we're if we're talking here really about professional class liberated western graduate women then i think that's that this is a this is a set of trade-offs that a lot of mothers face and yeah. i think perhaps perhaps it's you know within within an, what i what i was saying is the sort of narrowly understood um take on freedom you know those those questions are very difficult even to ask because you know how 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 dare you suggest that there even are any limits so let's talk about post-liberalism then. And uh, you write for Unheard, you're a columnist for Unheard, which is this online um, news outlet that is a sort of, I, you know, I'm not sure they'd use this kind of technical term, but they're trying to not be politically boxed as left-wing or right-wing. Um, and certainly a lot of the people that write for them are beginning to cluster around this term post-liberal and from the outside, as a kind of interested observer, I sometimes write for on her too, the, it seems to me to be a kind of evolution of what was known as a kind of red Tory slash blue Labour flowering pre-George Osborne, basically, um, and have some of those similar threads. But it's had a spike in interest because Danny Kruger, who's a new Conservative MP, made his maiden speech about it. There are a few things in the Times about it. It feels to me like a kind of political thing that there's growing interest in. And even as someone who's sort of reasonably close to it and temperamentally open to the possibility that there's useful ideas there, I still don't even really know how to define it. I know you've written more on it than I have. What What is it? <laughs> and uh, how did you get there? Um I'll answer the second first. Uh, the second, the second question: How did I get there? Um, by accident. Um, I followed. I'm a great lover of internet rabbit holes. Um, my hobby is internet rabbit holes. Um, I follow my interests um, and read up on things that I find interesting. And you know, cumulatively over a period of some years, I suppose, probably starting around Cameron era, maybe a little bit before. I guess you know, from the Great Crash onwards, I just found myself. Um, again, pursuing this this line of inquiry, you know, if that was if that was a load of rubbish, then what else is? And you know, I've, I've found myself following up um, with a particular interest in um, perspectives which were which were neither straightforwardly conservative nor um, you know, orthodox left, um, and that covered quite a, quite a wide range of writers. But but yeah, I, I mean, post liberal is a is a difficult idea. Uh, well, it's, it's a it's not a very useful term in a way because it defines itself in in terms of its um i don't want to say its enemy because it's not really you know cert certainly i don't think of myself as an as as not a as the enemy of liberalism you know i, I am basically a liberal you know in, in most respects you know I'm, I'm pretty yeah pretty straightforwardly liberal in 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 many regards um i mean the only the only difference really i see between myself and any any other sort of bog standard liberal is that you know i'm i'm uncomfortably aware that there are some costs to liberalism and i'm i'm trying to be intellectually honest i suppose in my writing about um exploring what some of those costs are and you know following follow just following that line of reasoning a bit you know i i, I ask these questions because i i don't really want to see the baby thrown out with the bathwater i suppose 
you know, and I, 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 I'm concerned that, you know, if, if by accident, by, you know, not, by not hedging against sort of, you know, unintended consequences, you know, in, in, in our sort of headlong pursuit of personal freedom, we end up somewhere, you know, that actually isn't, isn't very free or isn't very social or isn't very liberal, in fact. You know, and I, I wouldn't be the first person to suggest that, you know, in, in some respects, that's where we are or that's where we're heading at the moment as a society. I, re- I realise I haven't answered at all the question of what post-liberalism what is. What is it? Yes. Um, but I, I suppose, <laughs> you know, I, I say the only thing that distinguishes me from a liberal is that I'm, I'm keen to count the costs. And, you know, I, 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 I said to somebody else the other day that the only thing that distinguishes me from a conservative is that I don't like some of my conclusions. Well, I suppose if it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of mentally running through um, post-liberals that I know, and they vary enormously, you know, from from sort of gay atheist post-liberals with a kind of European sensibility through to sort of hardline, quite socially conservative Catholics. It's heavily Catholic, Catholic in its inflection. You know, a lot of American post-liberals come from a Catholic background. Um, but I think if if it if they have a defined if they have a sort of um, shared trait, it's probably a willingness to consider um, questions of the social. And whether or not um, the social, you know, imposes constraints on individuals. Mary, I'm going to ask you a final question that I ask everyone. And for some people, it's very easy to frame what divides they sit on and what they've learnt about crossing them. Um, it's not at all easy to frame for you, which is probably why I like your writing. Um, uh, and you are have been part of and continue to be part of and questioning multiple tribes on lots of different axes. But, you know, you are trying to write in public about things that are difficult to navigate and are easy to say stupid things about and are easy to be hateful about, basically, which is why they're hard to write about and why lots of people don't try. Um, What have you learned about what, I guess maybe as a psychotherapist, but primarily as a columnist, what... What enables us to have those encounters that enables us to ha- to grow in understanding of each other, even if we're different, even if we disagree with each other, rather than just continually triggering, triggering each other into these defensive reactions, which seems to me to be the mode that we're generally stuck in in public debate. I mean, it's probably too pat to say get off social media. But, but to be honest, I think oh, social media is absolutely pernicious. And the more short form, the better, or the worse, rather. In that respect, um, I was, it's funny. I was thinking about this earlier today. Um, I think the internet is, you know, has has enormous potential to spread ideas and, you know, allow exchange of views and so on and so forth. But it fails in thinking of you know, the, the shortcomings of the internet. Um, great, it's great for sharing information. It's great for sharing knowledge and ideas. Um, where it fails is in um, in, is in allowing emotion to be um, conveyed and received in any sort of in any sort of sincere or kind or generous way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a it's it's a it's even worse than the loss of nuance on the telephone where you can't see somebody's face. Um, but the loss of nuance in writing, especially where there are constraints on characters, is is, is an enormous contributor, I think, to the the, the sort of in, polarization of political debate and you know sometimes I watch (laughs) well uh, so somebody somebody started one of these futile debates with me the other day they picked up they picked me up on something that I said on Twitter and misread it in an uncharitable way 
I responded saying, well, no, that isn't what I meant, whereupon they came back and misread my response in an uncharitable way. And I looked at it and I thought, this could go on for the rest of my afternoon and eat all my emotional energy. I don't have time for that because I've got to go and cook tea for a three-year-old soon. And I just, I just don't do this. Um, so I, 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 I wished them good day and, and just went and did something else. And that's incredibly hard to do. And, and I don't want a medal for doing it because there are plenty of times when I've succumbed. We all succumb. Um, and I feel like I feel like there's something there's something very deep. Um, there's a there's a real yearning going on, you know. And all of these people who are trying, who are who are you know fighting each other on the internet. I feel like behind it there's a sort of there's a yearning for connection. There's a yearning for recognition. And there's a yearning to be understood. Um, and when it when it's knocked back again and again and again, because you can never really be fully understood except in a face to face encounter. And even then, it's incredibly difficult because it takes reflexivity and it takes charity and it takes a willingness on both sides to try. And so, what you you have this sort of magnification of you know poss- of different ways you can be misunderstood, and you know an ever more constrained you know field in which you're trying to be understood, and an ever ever more desperate yearning to be understood. And and then it sort of curdles into this kind of rancid kind of you know babel of acrimony on the internet. Um, so you know, in answer to in answer to what what do I think, what do I think we could do in order to understand one another better? Part of the answer is get off social media, and the other part of the answer is um, accept that sometimes we won't be understood. You know, do our best to read charitably. Um, do our best to read whatever it is that we're reading in the most. In you know, as, try and assume that the other person is is meaning well don't assume bad faith even if even if it is bad faith it doesn't really matter but if you assume good faith then you might get a little bit further and then also accept the fact that you know sometimes you're not going to be understood and actually that's painful mm. not that that's okay because it's painful um and 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 be will be able and willing to walk away I now will have that song, which I'm going to resist singing, but the lyric goes, I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. And it does feel like that's a good anthem. Mary Harrington, thank you so much for talking to me on The Sacred. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I'm Elizabeth Oldfield. The producer of this episode is Soup Shop Productions, and it is a project of the think tank Theos. We'd really love to hear your thoughts, whether via Twitter at sacred underscore podcast or me at Theos Elizabeth or the sacred podcast at gmail.com if it's easier to write in long form. As always, please do rate and share so others can find the podcast. We're also now available on Spotify, so it's even easier to take the sacred with you wherever you go. Finally, if you'd like to know more about the work of Theos, you can connect via the website at theosthinktank.co.uk.